welcome to another episode of Black Peak's podcast, Tete a Tete. I'm Jack Claude, co-founder of Black Peak, and today it's my great pleasure and honour to welcome Archana Katecha as our interviewee. Our discussion today will cover the extent and causes of forced labour, particularly in global supply chains. We will speak about how to detect this risk through due diligence and audits, and how the approach to remedial action needs to be improved. We will also explain the very severe criminal, reputational and financial damage that lays in wait for those companies and investors who are not proactive enough in striving for a supply chain free of forced labour. First, let me introduce Archana. Archana is a UK qualified barrister whose first career was in corporate law before she joined the UN Refugee Agency's legal protection team and subsequently held senior positions and committee roles in leading UK bodies that focused on reducing people trafficking and on child welfare. Following a move to Hong Kong, Archana joined Liberty Shared as head of legal, an organisation that uses legal advocacy and collaboration with NGOs, corporations and financial institutions to reduce human trafficking. Archana has very broad experience including producing victim identification toolkit training, establishing an online legal resources centre, and lobbying the Hong Kong government and regional governments on improving measures to reduce people trafficking and forced labour. Our China is recognised as a subject matter expert and has been named as one of the top 10 innovative lawyers in Asia Pacific by the Financial Times. Our China has recently founded the Remedy Project, an exciting new venture and we look forward to hearing more about that during our conversation. Thank you, Archana, for coming to speak to us on, on this very important topic. Um, so my first question is, how serious is the problem of modern slavery, including forced labour, uh, globally? Thank you for having me. And, and I think one of the first things I should perhaps clarify is that the term modern slavery actually includes a range of um, exploitation. So it includes offences like forced labour, human trafficking, dead bondage, servitude, forced marriage, etc. It represents, it's an umbrella term for several offences. In terms of the scale of the problem, we have 40.3 million people who are estimated to be living and working in conditions of modern day slavery today. Of those, 24.9 million are in forced labour. And of those, 16 million are in forced labour in the private economy. Um, in terms of, of the value of this industry, it's estimated that it's worth close to $150 billion um, a year. That's US dollars. And the bulk of the problem, close to 62% of this problem, sits in the Asia-Pacific region, which is home to, to both you and I. In terms of, of some of the high-risk industries, we have uh, recruitment and manning agencies. We have construction, domestic work food processing, mining, logging, construction, um, restaurants, the sex industry, of course, transportation, um, modeling agencies, au pair, babysitting agencies, etc. Um, if you wanted a, a, a very rough idea of the sort of value of, of these different industries, domestic work, for example, contributes $8 billion. Construction, manufacturing, mining, close to $34 billion. Commercial sexual exploitation, 99 billion. So this really is the third fastest growing form of organized crime behind drug trafficking and um, counterfeit goods. 
in terms of what what the landscape looks like right now, I mean, it would be remiss of me not to talk about the impact of COVID-19 and in particular how this has impacted um, not just access of vulnerable people to services that are much needed, including identification and support services, uh, but also um, in relation to the new vulnerabilities it has created. Many of you will have read and heard about how thousands of migrant workers were either stranded at airports or dumped in the countries where they were working um, with no opportunities to fly back home anytime soon, no jobs, um, no sources of income. In some countries, the laws were unilaterally changed so that that changed um, the wage allocation for the migrant workers contrary to the terms of, of their contract. But I think one thing that has, has really come to the fore is that the exploitation of migrant workers in global supply chains is, is very stark. And a lot of these inequalities and a lot of these uh, difficulties have been highlighted uh, during COVID, where you know there has been so little remedy provided for the situation that workers have found themselves in, both from a medical perspective and you know, the living and working conditions were atrocious and actually sparked a lot of the spread of the virus in, in some countries. And um, the, the other issue was you know, the inaccessibility of support for these individuals because a lot of the work that outreach services do had to halt or be stopped during that time. And as law enforcement is deployed towards containing the spread of the virus, um, the detection levels of human trafficking and forced labor have dropped significantly. So really, I think this is an impact that is going to continue to unfold over the coming years. And we've seen, for example, a lot of companies pull purchasing orders uh, from their suppliers, which has left the suppliers economically very vulnerable. They've shut shop. They've let go of, of you know, thousands of migrant workers. It's estimated the garment industry alone has suffered a casualty of over a million workers losing jobs. Um, those individuals become incredibly vulnerable to exploitation. And you know one expects that as soon as the economy starts to pick up again and there is a huge demand for workers, that that would also increase the opportunities for exploitation. And has it also um, uh, reduced the support that that NGOs are getting, so it gets harder for them to raise uh, uh, money for financial uh, support? Absolutely, because you know what has happened is a lot of donors, philanthropic donors and various other donors, including governments, are now sort of re-channeling the funds that used to be available to NGOs to public health services. So what that has essentially meant is that you know a lot of the basic support like shelters, counseling, legal assistance, etc., um, is now very restricted and in some places not even available. So in terms of, um, I mean, forced labour in its various forms and slave labour has existed um, uh, for, for, for thousands of years. Um, in terms of company supply chains, um, what, is the, what is the main reason that it's so persistent um, and so hard to eradicate uh, in, in, in company supply chains? I mean, for, for decades, business models have been steeped in this issue. And, you know, over time, as supply chains have grown more and more complex, 
you know it has become even harder to unravel a lot of um, a lot of these sort of illicit activities. Give you just an example of the journey of a migrant worker. From the recruitment stage, we start to see illegal recruitment fees that are often extremely excessive. For example, a Nepalese worker could be charged anywhere in the region of three and a half to five thousand US dollars in his village by a sub broker in order to get a job on a palm oil plantation um, or a, a rubber um, factory in Malaysia. The levels of corruption that are involved in sometimes getting a passport, so public sector corruption where you know bribes and fees are needed to be paid. Recruitment is often deceptive, where people are deceived about the types of jobs that they're going to be working in, the wages, the living conditions, etc. And very often we see contract substitution where in their home country the worker signs a contract. And actually, in actual fact, when they arrive in the destination country, the contractual terms that they're made to sign to there are completely different to the first set. Then you have the debt that was created in the country of origin that generates what is called debt-induced labor. So this is also known as debt bondage or bonded labor. Um, oftentimes you'll see the manipulation of debts, unjust wage deductions, high debts, high interest rates, which put um, vulnerable people at, you know, significant, significant economic um, you know, difficulties. And, and the third aspect of it is really the coercive employment. And you know, this is living and working conditions where um, you, that includes things like wage retention, but also retention of identity documents, restriction of freedom of movement, threats and intimidations against the workers, compulsory overtime, and uh, this is particularly salient where migrant workers are paid much less than they are originally promised so that they actually find they have to do excessive hours of overtime in order to make enough money to pay debts and to send money home. So, you know, these are just some of the problems. And then it's the way it's the way the buying and, and business happens where there are huge, huge demands on suppliers, very tight timeframes and the need to turn over very quickly to remain competitive. And in that process, there has to be a give somewhere. And that give comes with the human capital. And the fact that supply chains are so many layers deep has given the opportunity for a lot of illicit practices to really entrench themselves and to take root into business models. And because our legal frameworks have over the years, frankly, looked the other way when it has come to this type of systemic coercion, um, these practices have persisted. And if you're a migrant worker and you look around you and you think what is happening to you is unfair, there are thousands of them around you who are all subjected to the same conditions. So, so would it be fair to say that companies broadly fall into, into these sort of categories? There are those that are complicit um, and are reliant on the economic benefits of, uh, that, it, that it brings to exploit workers. There are companies that are aware it's a risk due to the sector and countries they operate in, but are, are turning a blind eye. They're just they're just not looking for it, even though it's they know it's a risk. And then there are companies who are trying very hard to avoid it, um, but are not always successful. Um, so, in terms of in all those cases, if if it is detected, what sort of First of all, are those are those reasonable categories of, of what's going on? 
And then what sort of damage can be caused to companies if, if it is detected within their supply chains? You know, the, the damage to companies can be quite stark and this the consequences are getting you know worse and worse as time is passing so you have obviously the reputational issues so you know this is a of very topical interest so you will you know it's it's almost normal now to see investigative journalism really target certain sectors certain geographies and to report quite extensively on it uh, for example, Malaysia has been in the press a lot lately because of uh, customs and border protection in the U.S. action against some um, of the companies within the rubber industry, within the palm oil industry, etc. And, um, you know, the investors, consumers react extremely negatively to such publicity and it could be very harmful to companies. Banks and financial institutions who are banking those companies are also taking action now. So we are seeing um, a number of banks exit businesses that are known to be to carry very strong taints of, of slavery and forced labor. There's obviously, you know, that, that also presents a financial risk uh, to companies as well with, you know, consumers pulling away, investors pulling away um, and, um, you know, large buyers not wanting to do business with certain types of suppliers in certain geographies and you know the legal risks um, human trafficking and forced labor are serious criminal offenses companies that engage in wage deduction or wage manipulation you know this is a money laundering offense and it simply has not been cast this way to date but it's a matter of time before this happens particularly given how legal frameworks are changing across the world so we all know that you know in 2021, Europe is headed for mandatory human rights due diligence law, which will be you know which will be designed to really put pressure on businesses in Europe, but also businesses in other parts of the world that are supplying Europe to identify risk and to manage risk. We've seen following you know the relatively sort of I, I shouldn't I shouldn't use the term toothless because it did have uh, value. Modern Slavery Act in the UK that the subsequent iterations of modern slavery compliance laws have be, are being developed with a lot more teeth. And that will also really impact um, you know, how companies choose to, to think about this and how impacted they're going to be. And you know, just a, a final note on, on this particular question, we have seen in the last three or four years an appetite on the parts of courts, higher courts in several countries, including Canada and the UK, to really step behind the corporate veil and to look at the responsibility of parent companies for subsidiaries that exist you know, in far-flung regions um, for exploiting individuals in those countries. So really, you know, the net is being cast very wide in terms of regulatory action and now is a very good time to start looking at ways in which risk can be identified and managed. So, so as you've seen um, these new laws and regulations um, come into place or, or soon to arrive, um, what impact have, are you seeing on, on the sort of geographic concentration of risk? So are there some countries that used to be uh, higher risk but have now significantly improved and are unethical companies shifting uh, their uh, activities to countries which, which are not going to be easy to, to enforce these laws in? 
I mean, the movement, uh, not at the moment, COVID has slowed down a lot of this um, movement, obviously. But previously, you know, there, there was, there, there is a shift generally because industries tend to move towards jurisdictions where it's much easier for them to operate, where the labor costs are extremely low, um, particularly where there are sort of those, uh, I forget what the exact term is, I think it is uh, the tax-free zones where, you know, external um, companies are allowed to come into a country and operate within a framework where they pretty much do what they want, uh, you know, above scrutiny. And we see a lot of exploitation in in those sectors. Um, and so, so yeah, I mean, you know, the, the, in terms of, you know, getting a lot better, the problem is that there's no, there's no sustained approach anywhere and there's mm. no cohesive or holistic plan anywhere. Mm. Um, so if a country or a sector geography comes under fire, you know, for because of investigative journalism or various other elements, there is a big spike of activity in that area and everybody's under scrutiny for quite some time. You know, this was the case with the Thai fishing industry, particularly after the EU yellow card. Um, and now we see a lot of this similar sort of focus around Malaysia's palm oil and rubber industries. Um, however, you know, as soon as the interest wanes away and, you know, this peaks up somewhere else, then all the attention focuses elsewhere. And the original geographies and, um, and impacted people are often forgotten. So, so you've been fighting um, forced labour for, for many years and... Um, long enough to, to identify areas where uh, things need to be improved, new approaches need to be added, um, and where maybe limitations in terms of um, what the uh, law and regulations can actually achieve in practice and the outcome of those um, cases. And uh, you've launched the Remedy Project. And so we'd love to hear more about, um, about that. Thank you. So the Remedy Project was basically born out of my work at Liberty Shared. And I think over over a career that has spanned you know almost fifteen years in in this space, uh, one of the one of the things I've been very disillusioned with is how fractured the rule of law has been and how fractured judicial mechanisms, so the traditional court system, tribunals, etc., have been in providing remedies for migrant workers. When I talked earlier about systemic coercion, I mean our legal frameworks are simply not built to address this form of, of, you know, contemporary exploitation. And therefore, you know, it led me to think that there's got to be different ways of doing this. And I set up the Remedy Project so that it would give me an opportunity to experiment with uh, non-judicial mechanisms that would offer a degree of complementarity to judicial mechanisms. What I mean by that is, you know, the creation of solutions that are easily adaptable in local situations by companies, by migrant workers, in order to resolve some of the issues that actually don't really need to go to a court of law. So, for example, um, the issues of, of passport retention, or for example, where there are issues around wages, we've developed an alternative dispute resolution mechanism that is really focused on, on two things. One is eliminating the asymmetry of power between migrant workers and companies so that migrant workers are better enabled uh, to access remedial systems, to express their views and to claim their rights and to access remedy within an efficient time period. 
And then the second thing there is that, you know, migrant workers are represented all the way through the remedial mechanism. So on its management committee, on its supervisory committee, they have access to legal assistance. And there is also very various protective mechanisms such as non-retaliation, confidentiality, etc. And then the the other side of it from a company perspective and why it's interesting for them to engage with with the mechanism is it operates as an early warning signal. So you know that things are happening, they're not right. You have an opportunity to address it uh, before it snowballs into forced labor and human trafficking. This is especially interesting given all the mandatory human rights due diligence and modern slavery compliance regulations that are coming into force. So it's a good way to understand where the gaps are in your business and in your corporate governance processes that really need uh, to be addressed. And from the perspective of providing a solution, it saves a lot on reputational damage, financial costs, waste of time and staff turnover if you're able to arrive at a resolution. And the other thing is, you know, we're looking at times, you know, times where we're in the midst of a pandemic. And really, this has impacted the judicial system quite significantly. So there is a need to find solutions that can still continue to provide support and remedy for migrant workers, even through, and even more so, through these times of of a pandemic. And that's why it's really important that, you know, migrant workers who are in jobs are able to retain their jobs um, as long as they're able to remedy the issues that are popping up in the employment relationship. I think there has to be an acknowledgement that irrespective of the nature of an employment relationship, it is a dynamic relationship. What starts well might not end well. What starts badly might end well. And you know we have to provide resilience in the way we identify risks, but also in the way we manage them and how we treat our worker community as well. So I imagine um, through this process, you will um, get even more interaction directly with with the workers themselves and be able to listen to their stories and listen to um, uh, how they found themselves in these situations. And and I guess this comes partly to a a question I wanted to ask, um, uh, maybe more of a personal question in terms of what drives you uh, uh, with this particular um, um, uh, issue. You know, there's many injustices in the world, um, and this is amongst the most serious ones. But what's what's driven you over the years uh, to to focus on uh, forced labour? Uh, what, what's 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 the background of that? You know, I did I did my first ever um, trafficking case. It was a sex trafficking case out of Eastern Europe many years ago in the UK. There was something particularly savage and and wrong about that case, and it was. I guess it showed human humanity at its worst and most depraved to me. I struggled to to get over that and wanted to understand a lot more what makes people behave like this. Why do people do this? And how can we bring some kind of resolution to the people who've been affected by it? And I guess I then spent the next 15 years trying to find what that resolution would look like for the people who are impacted. And I guess, you know, I've come full circle with the Remedy Project and the reason why I decided to focus on forced labor um, is because we are not doing enough in this area. And when I think about the cross sections between 
um, forced labor and human trafficking and our own daily lives from the clothes we wear, the food we eat, uh, the buildings we work in or we live in, it's so significant that it's really hard to look away from it. And the fact that we think it's perfectly normal for people to be exploited in this way and for business models to thrive on this basis is simply wrong. And, you know, I, uh, I want to reframe the narrative around this uh, issue and I want to be part of those who will continue to try to ideate and innovate around finding um, solutions um, for these individuals. And, you know, whoever said you've got to dream big to achieve big, uh, my dream with the Remedy Project is to really revolutionize the way migrant workers access justice in supply chains because we really are failing these vulnerable people right now. Yes, so I think this will continue to um, uh, raise raise this issue, more awareness of this issue uh, amongst consumers, shine more of a light on it. As you say, a lot of people go around their daily lives uh, consuming products or working with companies and, and really unaware um, of the degree of this issue globally um, and, and how persistent it is and um, in some cases how they can be part of the solution. Um, so for those who um, are managing supply chains, uh, are working in companies um, and are concerned about this risk, um, how do companies try and minimize the risk of, of forced labor ever occurring in their supply chains? What sort of steps should they take? I mean, there's the obvious contractual terms that you can have in your, you know, contracts with your suppliers or, or parties that you're engaging with to, to basically require them to observe um, some minimum levels of um, risk within, within their operations. Uh, you can have warranties, indemnities to protect yourself from any further action that might, um, you know, any, any negligence on, on their part or any sort of uh, illicit activities uh, undertaken. There are codes of conduct. So for example, many companies will have a code of conduct that suppliers have to sign to basically say that they're not going to breach these conditions. There'll be no child labor, no forced labor, no human trafficking, etc. Companies are known to have conducted audits for a very long time. And you know, we, we all know that audits are not without their failings. And and sometimes, you know, all, all of this is part of a comprehensive sort of compliance program. Um, some companies go a bit further and conduct fairly in-depth human rights um, impact assessments so that they really understand what sort of um, level of risk exists at you know tier one, tier two, and, and some of the other tiers within their supply chain. Um, because of the need for due diligence and the fact that many companies are now filing group modern slavery statements for various jurisdictional requirements, um, there is also a degree of training that we are seeing staff are being trained, frontline staff, on understanding the issue and, and identifying it. There are some new whistleblower um, uh, sort of you know, schemes that are coming up, etc. Um, I think a, a significant way of minimizing risk has to be enhanced due diligence and you know, early identification of risk. And that's what we are trying to look at, you know, at the Remedy Project on how we can build infrastructure that will both double up as, you know, a way of identifying risk early and managing it, but at the same time provide resolution um, to migrant workers. Yes, I've certainly seen uh, companies adopt um, what I think is, is probably best practice uh, these days, which is to have a thorough 
screening program for you know, existing suppliers and potential new suppliers. Um, these typically involve uh, identifying where the risk is highest within a supply chain by country and, and by sector. Um, at the very least, conducting um, database screening on uh, looking for corruption history, regulatory breaches, political exposure, litigation. There's a whole host of things that can be easily done uh, when looking at a supplier and its owners uh, to make sure that there aren't any immediate red flags uh, regarding their behavior and their exposure to this sort of issue. And then of course there are, there are, there are deeper levels of check that uh, are recommended for significant you know, tier one or tier three or four suppliers um, where you look more closely at the ultimate ownership do those owners um, have other businesses where they've run, where, where there's been incidents of, of forced labor, um, you need to dig into local language, media, or even sometimes social media these days may bring to light flags where people are talking about uh, exploitation at a particular company in a particular country. So, so there's, there's that level that is, is recommended particularly for, uh, for larger, larger suppliers in the supply chain. Um, and sometimes, you know, as you were mentioning, uh, these audits are very important, um, but may not bring to light um, certain issues because workers who are spoken to may be reluctant to talk honestly for, for fear of retribution. Um, so uh, it can often be very helpful to have a firm uh, arranged to speak to recent ex-workers or, or workers at a, at a, at a company um, to confidentially to see uh, what they may, may disclose regarding their own history, the uh, non-compliant uh, activities at the factory um, or at, the, at, at business. So that kind of approach will um, hugely reduce the risk that forced labour uh, or other kind of offences will, will, will go undetected. I think I think Jack, it's worth pointing out here that you know audits do often uncover a lot of illicit activity, but companies choose to look the other way, and they have been able to look the other way for absolutely many years. And corporate accountability is extremely poor. So while the whole movement around transparency is sort of you know still in its nascent days and it's kind of growing, transparency is not accountability. And where it is so difficult to prosecute companies or to go after companies unless you're U.S. Customs and Border Protection, um, companies are still getting away with it. And um, many of them sit on auditors' reports that highlight serious criminal activity and don't do anything about it. So, you know, now this is going to start affecting their business a lot more. So there is still time to get the house in order before a lot more regulation kicks in and starts to really impact them. So people need to be understanding the, the chances of criminal prosecution if they are complicit or um, are filing away um, audit reports which have significant red flags without um, taking follow-up action uh, is, is, is increasing every every day as, as new global laws and regulations come into play. Um, so Absolutely. The, so the risks are, are getting higher. 
the risks are getting higher because in in most countries in the world have criminalized forced labor and human trafficking in some shape or form. And those countries also tend to have laws around aiding and abetting, whether directly or indirectly. Um, many countries in the world have laws against, you know, corporate involvement with this with this particular issue as well. So, you know, this is a serious issue. And whether it's wage retention with its money laundering sort of nexus, or whether it is human trafficking or forced labor, these are illicit activities and there is never a justification for any of these. So the bad news is that this is continues to be a very significant issue globally. Um, but the good news is that there are new approaches uh, being taken, there are new laws being put into place, diligent companies have solutions that they can employ, um, uh, they need to uh, understand the options, have a good holistic uh, approach to them, to this issue. Um, is that right? Absolutely. And you know, they're, they're, but we need to do a bit more and a bit faster because um, you know, I'm I'm a human rights um, lawyer, and you know, I've spent too many years watching this grow from strength to strength. And I think we really need to double up our efforts uh, because 40.3 million people don't have the time that we have. Well, thank you. That's been very educational and, and fascinating. And um, I, I have plenty of follow-up questions, but uh, maybe those will be for another another uh, talk that we could do in the future. Um, and certainly I expect that uh, some of the listeners may have, may have questions and uh, you know, we'll arrange for them to be able to, uh, to send those in. Thank you. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm.